0: Money FM 89.3, best of your money. Read with Michelle Martin. He's an expert on culture, branding, and communication, and a regular guest on BBC World News. He's written a book that combines academic research and insights from thinkers, creatives, and entrepreneurs on how the world has changed and how the old rules don't apply. There are new ways of thinking about power, family, risk, relationship. I'm reading Surfing the Asian Wave. Author Steve McGinnis joins me live. Steve, welcome to Read and thank you for being here with us this morning. Good morning. It's
1: absolutely fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: You know, as an expert on East-West communication, culture impacting relationship, power cascades, I I wonder if we could start with COVID-19 and what we've seen over in Wuhan. The lockdown of 11 million people in Wuhan Is said to have bought the world time to cope with COVID-19. And as we see the spread of the virus across the globe, the first case of unknown origin in the U.S. popping up, I have to ask, do you think that what's been done in Wuhan with regards to social isolation is something that other Western countries would be able to implement similarly?
1: That's a fantastic question, and it actually absolutely gets to the heart of the point that the book is trying to make and and the larger topic at hand with it. So you have essentially two different ways of thinking. There's a top-down, hierarchically-led power structure and thought structure that you see more in Asia. And there's a much more decentralized, individualized, action-orientated culture on the West. So in an example like like the virus, you have a paradigm in which mid-level doctors and health officials were aware something was going on. But because of that top-down dynamic, they felt uncomfortable or unable to cascade it upwards to the people that could make the decisions on it. So there's a question of if the senior leaders knew about this earlier, could more have been done quicker, and possibly that's the case. However, that same top-down dynamic then allows for the creation and the building of multi-thousand patient hospitals in a matter of days. Something in the West would take years of planning and negotiation and discussion to get done. And similarly, they're able to lock down a whole city, which to London or or Sydney or New York would be absolutely impossible to even comprehend the idea of doing that. So I think there is a a plus and a minus to both sides here. The top-down mentality allows things to get done and implemented in action quickly. However, it may prevent some of that movement of information. Similarly, I find it very hard to believe that any of the Western cities would be able to act as quickly or implement these policies. So whilst China has bought, as you say, the world time by locking this down, if it does spread to a New York or London, it would be very hard to, to do a similar uh, practice in place there. And I think that's really where the governments and, and the leaders need to look to each other and take that best practice. How can China see what the West would do in terms of moving that information? And how can the West see how well China could implement the actions required.
0: Some also say China's openness, taking down that firewall, opening China to Western doctors or uh, doctors from the US, uh, talent from around the world to help it fight COVID-19 is essential. You worked in China. Uh, How open is China to outside influence, would you say?
1: I think there's two elements within this. There's the vision and the the values and the the statements that businesses and governments make around openness and entrepreneurialism and and using creativity and being open to outside ideas. There's the stated intents. And then there's actually the way people are going to react because it's, it's centuries and thousands of years of culture building up within it. So whilst you can say we're open to new ideas, However, in reality, people are going to be much more comfortable with the ideas they know, that have been proven, that have come from there. So I think there are occasions where you see a a clash between the stated intent and what really happens. You can't change how people feel about the outside world or about Western influence or even about people they don't know just by making a statement. Mm. So I think whilst the government may be making those points, it's different to see that actually enacted on a day-to-day basis. But I've been going to China in and out for the last 15, 20 years, and you have seen an opening up. Uh, And there obviously was a lag between the government's stated intentions to actually people on the ground opening up and being more ease with foreign ideas or foreign inputs. But there is a time that's going to take to happen.
0: I wonder if you can comment on this notion of saving face. It's something very common in Asian societies in China and and here in Singapore. And I wonder how you see that impacting power relations.
1: That's a great question. So I think something like face is... Really comes to the heart of the differences between the West and Asia. So, face and the idea of pride and shame and the impact on what you do—not just on your own life, but on that of your family and friends—is so inherent and deeply rooted within Asian culture that people forget that it's that it's even a factor. It's just who people are. In the West, that idea is is very alien. You know, there's this feeling that in in America and and the more progressive. Uh, businesses that you have to fail a few times there's no shame in failure you've got to fail otherwise you don't know what you're doing so the idea is that yeah that didn't work bring on the next thing yep i made a fool of myself there but what's the next challenge i've learned from that and again in the west that is so deeply rooted we don't even feel it's a way of thinking it's just how the world is and the conflicts and the clashes whether it is face whether it is risk whether it is time are really down often to the fact that the two sides don't know there's a way that isn't their way of seeing the world. So the the Westerners will look at uh, China or Asia or and go, why aren't they taking these chances? Why aren't they doing this? Why are they not open to, to, to change? Mm. Whereas the, 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 the Asian viewpoint would be, well, no, this works. I'm locked into this. This is safe. Why on earth would I even think about jeopardizing it? So I think the level of openness to risk in reality is probably the same for most people, but how that is perceived as being a huge risk or, hey, this is something I'll get over with. And I think that's going to impact in terms of trying new things and adoption. But the big hurdle, and this really is, I believe, the big hurdle, is for the two sides to even appreciate that their view isn't the only view or that they even have a view
0: Yes. The yes. fish
1: can't see the water that is in.
0: Very important point, I think. How do you know what you don't know? And I wonder if your book addresses this.
1: I think if anybody was to come away from the book, even with an understanding that there's a world they don't know, that would be a huge success for me. Everything else on top of that would be would be a huge bonus. Yes. I, that is really this, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of scary though. They say that the most intelligent people are full of doubt. And the, uh, the stupid people are full of confidence.
0: Absolutely right. I was just thinking, you know, in, in the chapter on relationships, you talk about how humility is a must. It's seen as a must to, to building the trust that relationships require. And that's such a given in Asia, I think. But it goes to your point again of, you know, doubt, yeah, yeah. essential.
1: And, and even the order in which things can progress. Mm. So in the West, in business relationships, you agree a deal. And then over the course of the deal and Mm -hmm. the project, you build a relationship with each other. Whereas in Asia, you build the relationship and that has to be strongly in place before you even think about doing the deal. So uh, Asian companies will be surprised at the speed and the laissez-faire attitude within which people jump into bed together uh, in business in the West. Whereas the Westerners playing in, in Asia just can't understand why things take so long.
0: You start the book off uh, by, with a quote from someone saying, in Asia you will do everything wrong, you will pull out the wrong chair, you will give the card the wrong way, sort of expect that. So I want to start by asking, who did you write Surfing the Asian Way for? Is it primarily a Western audience?
1: Primarily. I think the insights are universal. Uh, I think the principles apply to both sides of the table. And, but I am a Westerner in Asia. I wouldn't presume to see things from an Asian looking at Western viewpoint. However, what I'm understanding and what I'm realizing is Asian people, Chinese, Indonesians, and Singaporeans are reading this and they're absolutely recognizing the scenarios they've seen. And for them, it's fascinating seeing it from the other side. So I think um, moving on from this, looking at the the same principles from the other viewpoint would be Mm. equally useful. But the Singaporeans and the Chinese people that I know have read this have found it absolutely enlightening to sort of peek behind the curtain and saying, oh, so that's why they do it that way. They're not being rude or thoughtless or or selfish. It's just that they're they're acting the way that they're conditioned to behave. And similarly, the other way.
0: Does this book have any insight into what we can expect with U.S.-China relations moving forward?
1: Absolutely. And I think whether it's on a micro scale of of two people meeting on a project or whether it's on the global scale of two world leaders, it's very hard to come to an agreement when what you want are two completely different things, but you don't understand that. So when the Chinese leaders are looking at policies and looking at plans, they're looking at the Belt and Road, they're looking at relations with Sri Lanka, they're looking at are buying up parts of Africa, they're looking on a time frame of 10, 20, 100, 150 years. They're looking at the long-term socio-economic stability and growth of a billion people. The American leadership is looking at how do I win the election in a few months' time? And they're fundamentally incompatible outcomes, timeframes, and even it's an individual versus a group target. You can't align those two viewpoints. You can't get a win for both because they're coming to a different needs.
0: Brilliant. You know, before COVID-19, all that we were talking on about on this station was Brexit Mm. and what the world would look like post-Brexit. Does this book help us understand in any way the nexus of Asia and Brexit, a post-Brexit world. Yeah,
1: well, I think twofold answer to that. It's very useful to the Brits because Britain has just lost its major trading partner overnight. We've lost our main and most easily accessible trading partner in the world. Could that be replaced by America? No, absolutely not. As Canada is discovering in its relationships with Trump, so the the UK, if it no longer has the ease of business with Europe, it may as well look at another much larger market, which is Asia. And a market in which actually the UK brand still has some cachet. Mm-hmm. You know, made in Britain, you know, the royal family, as we were listening earlier on, there is still a halo effect to that that perhaps isn't felt in Germany or France or, you know, or Italy. Whereas in China, in India, you know, there is something around that the British brand that can still be leveraged and played. That said... uh, Is Brexit just the start of a larger fragmentation and a movement away from the large global power box? What country moves out next? And then how are these countries interacting individually? So Europe to China relations are going to be different from Britain to China. They're going to be different from Germany to China or the UK to Japan. Those are going to be different conversations, and I don't think individual businesses can any longer rely on a larger body to be representing them in these conversations. I think business people, entrepreneurs, individuals need to have a much greater understanding of how they can interact directly with Asia because there's nobody doing it for them now.
0: It's a fantastic primer on intercultural communication. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. He's Steve McGinnis, author of Surfing the Asian Wave, How to Survive and Thrive in the New Global Reality. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.